Welcome back to Freud in Focus. This is episode two of our investigations into Freud's 1930 paper, Civilization and Its Discontents, with Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Roos. Now, last week ended with obscurity and passions, which Freud ended with a quote from the German playwright Friedrich Schiller, saying, Let him rejoice, who breathes up here in the roseate light. Now, today we'll be covering chapters two and three of the text, which take on a more sober and reflective tone. I also think that it's worth acknowledging the importance of this text right now. I think it's more significant than we'd originally thought it would be, as only days ago, Putin's Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, looking back to the text, this section starts with a continuation of the critique of religion and links to this need for the father. A few sentences into the second chapter, Freud writes, The whole thing, meaning religion, is so patently infantile, so foreign to reality, that to anyone with a friendly attitude to humanity, it is painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never be able to rise above this view of life. Tom, what's Freud setting out to do in chapter two? Well, firstly, Jamie, I think you're absolutely right to say that civilization and its discontents sadly has a much more immediate relevance than we had initially thought in light of the tragic events unfolding in the Ukraine. This relevance will, I think, become clearer over the next couple of episodes. But thinking about the passage you just read, Jamie, which sits in the middle of the first paragraph of chapter two, it's quite startling, really, when you think about it in relation to the first chapter. It really brings us down to earth with a bump. After the careful, wide-ranging and almost hesitant discussion of the oceanic feeling, we're back with Freud as the destroyer of illusions. It's hard not to be taken aback by this change in tone, which is bitter and almost disdainful of religion. Having designated the oceanic feeling as a consolation, which becomes attached to religion later on, he goes on the attack against the properly Oedipal source of religious feeling, the need for an omnipotent father that arises in the face of senseless human suffering under the remorseless and unforgiving power of fate. The whole thing, as Freud so scornfully puts it, is so patently infantile. And what's more, philosophers who seek to transform this anthropomorphic deity, this omnipotent father substitute, into an abstract and shadowy principle, someone like Hegel might come to mind here, are only creating false idols. This is a passage that can be compared to some of Nietzsche's attacks on religion in terms of invective. What Freud does admit to, however, is the problem of human suffering that drives us towards solutions such as those offered by religious systems. Life, he writes, in a disarmingly direct and personal phrase, as we know it, is too hard. It brings us too many pains, disappointments and impossible tasks. How then are we able to bear all this hardship pain, disappointment and impossibility. Freud suggests that there are three palliative measures available to us 
to help ease our suffering. The first is represented by a powerful deflections, such as the advice offered by Voltaire in Candide, to cultivate one's garden, or perhaps the pursuit of scientific activity. Secondly, there are substitutive satisfactions, psychically effective illusions offered by art and the products of fantasy. And thirdly, there are those intoxicating substances that can alter the chemistry of our bodies. But where, asks Freud, does religion fit in all of this? Religion seems, rather than being a palliative measure, to be somehow concerned with the notion of purpose. It answers the questions as to the purpose of life, the search for which seems to dominate the lives of so many people. Freud goes so far as to say that some people would come to the conclusion that life would not be worth living if it were not found to have a purpose. Religion offers an answer to this question. All will be revealed in the end. One day all this suffering will make sense. By studying people's behaviour we see that the real purpose of life is the search for happiness. I'm just going to read now from page 76 in the Standard Edition. Freud says, As we see, what decides the purpose of life is simply the program of the pleasure principle. This principle dominates the operation of the mental apparatus from the start. There can be no doubt about its efficacy, and yet its program is at loggerheads with the whole world, with the macrocosm as much as with the microcosm. There is no possibility at all of its being carried through. All the regulations of the universe run counter to it. One feels inclined to say that the intention that man should be happy is not included in the plan of creation. Hmm. Not the most upbeat of paragraphs, is it? Those, those of you listening might remember that we were acquainted with the Pleasure Principle from our first podcast series, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, last year, which Freud wrote ten years before this paper. How does he develop the argument here? So the purpose of life is not connected to some transcendent power or metaphysical truth, but rather to the program, to a program, sorry, that's directed by a principle. This is a very specific way of defining pleasure, I think. We're not thinking here about a conscious, self-determined set of pursuits, not something we have agency over, something goal-driven, but more a predetermined, automatically programmed propulsion over which we seem to have very little conscious control. Indeed, the notion of happiness has impossibility built into it. The sudden release of pent-up tension, which produces happiness in the narrow sense of the word, is only possible episodically. Its very possibility is conditioned by the building up of tension, that in psychoanalytic terms is equivalent to pain. And who wants to be eternally contented anyway? What can be less desirable than a succession of fair days, writes Freud, quoting Goethe. Again, we might hear echoes of Nietzsche's last man here, from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, who proclaims that he's discovered happiness 
and then blinks and returns to his regular and stultifying everyday activities. Whilst we might struggle to define happiness, unhappiness is much less elusive. There are, Freud suggests, three sources of suffering. Our own body, which is subject to decay and eventually death. The outside world, which threatens us with danger and potential extinction. And the most difficult to bear, the sufferings which come to us from our relations with other people, who continually disappoint us, despite our continued naive hope that they will not. Again, this comes across as a particularly personal and painful revelation for Freud, recalling perhaps the many perceived betrayals and disappointments suffered by him in the history of the psychoanalytic movement. Structurally too, this passage is notable, as we have another tripartite set of conditions, echoing the three palliative measures mentioned earlier. Now, rhetoricians love to do things in threes, but I think this is an especially subtle move by Freud. Although the three palliative measures and the three sources of suffering can't be lined up directly alongside each other, we are perhaps unconsciously nudged towards an awareness that religion does not fit into this tripartite structure. It's somehow further alienated and excluded from the task in hand. Under the influence of the reality principle, we are guided towards the more modest, passive pursuit of the avoidance of unpleasure, a safer and more prudent concern. Techniques for the avoidance of unpleasure include those which attempt to alter the exterior, like withdrawing from the outside world, or its opposite, a more effective activity of joining the human community. And also altering our interior state through intoxication, the altering of our chemical balance. This particular technique Freud describes as both extremely valuable and potentially injurious. Whilst the enjoyment of illusions offered by art represent another possibility for assuaging the pangs of suffering originating from the outside world. The technique that touches most closely on psychoanalytic theory is the influencing and transformation of our instinctual impulses. Although the practice of yoga aims to kill off the instincts and thus make us immune to the power of the outside world, a more modest and culturally accepted aim is the taming and relative controlling of our instincts. So we are less likely to suffer the extreme lows of misery or indeed the extreme highs of unmediated and unfettered instinctual satisfaction. This, Freud states, is the programme of the reality principle, which moderates the activity of the pleasure principle through experience. One final modification of the instincts is offered through their sublimation to allow them to turn towards activities that are qualitatively finer and higher. The relatively secure and sedate pleasures 
available to the artist in his joy at creating, or the scientist in solving problems and discovering truths, offer a sanctuary from suffering for those lucky enough to be capable of such transformations. Thank you, that's really interesting. So when Freud eventually returns to religion, um, he links it to madness, because it's a turning away from reality. He writes, The religions of mankind must be classed among the mass delusions of this kind. No one, needless to say, who shares a delusion ever recognizes it as such. How does Freud conclude chapter two, Tom? Well, Freud suggests that there are two more techniques that humans have developed to help deal with suffering. Uh, firstly, by making love the centre of everything. A technique that is particularly effective, he writes, due to the displaceability of our libido. However, in centering on loving, we make ourselves defenceless against the agony of losing the, the lost object. Freud pauses here and promises to explore the technique of loving at a later stage. Before summing up, he briefly describes the mildly intoxicating aesthetic attitude to life, which finds its pleasure in the contemplation of beauty. A practice derived from the field of the sexual, with the impulse inhibited in its aim, this technique offers little protection against the threat of suffering, but does compensate for a great deal, so that, in Freud's words, civilization cannot do without it. So Freud has taken us on a meandering, and by his own accounts, incomplete tour of the techniques that exist to help us avoid suffering. Techniques that involve adjustments to both our relations to the external world and the people we interact with, and our inner world and the instincts that propel us. Where then, as I mentioned before, does religion fit into all of this? It's impossible to fulfil the programme of the pleasure principle. Despite this, we're driven to attempt to achieve the impossibility of happiness. What is key for Freud, though, is that there are many paths along which happiness can be sought. He writes that happiness, in the reduced sense in which we recognise it as possible, is a problem of the economics of the individual's libido. Not only do external factors determine the most appropriate pathway one should take, but the psychical constitution of the individual is also key. By closing off the play of choice, religion forces us into a state of psychical infantilism. Freud's withering critique of religion concludes with the following assessment. There are, as we have said, many paths which may lead to such happiness as is attainable by men. But there is none which does so for certain. Even religion cannot keep its promise. If the believer finally sees himself obliged to speak of God's inscrutable decrees, he is admitting that all that is left to him as a last possible consolation and source of pleasure in his suffering is an unconditional submission. 
And if he is prepared for that, he could possibly have spared himself the detour he has made. One can hear echoes of the book of Job here, I think. So in the final reckoning, religion cannot answer the question of human suffering. Mm-hmm. And, then we, and then we move on to chapter three, which seems to begin with an apology that he hasn't really offered anything up to this point. So Freud begins by saying, Our inquiry concerning happiness has not so far taught us much that is not already common knowledge. And even if we proceed from it to the problem of why it is so hard for men to be happy, there seems no greater prospect of learning anything new. How does Freud attempt to understand our uh, continually failed attempt to find happiness? Well, uh, after reiterating the three causes of suffering, so we have the superior power of nature, the feebleness of our own bodies, and the inadequacy of the regulations which adjust the mental relations, uh, the mutual relations of human beings in the family, the state, and in society. Freud goes on to consider the radical suggestion that perhaps it is civilization itself that is the cause of our suffering. Perhaps we were happier as a species before the advent of civilization. Freud eventually decides against this line of thinking but he does not sweep it under the carpet. It is here that his reasoning becomes more subtle, more nuanced. Whilst technological advances brought about through the process of civilization cannot be seen as a panacea, they should not be dismissed out of hand. At this point, the key psychoanalytic concept of ambivalence begins gradually to appear. As humans, we desire to make value judgments in binaries, such as good and bad. But the more mature and developed intellectual and indeed psychical position is the ability to recognise the good and the bad in something. Things can be both beneficial and detrimental at the same time. In fact, learning to live with ambivalence is one of the key determinants of properly psychoanalytic thinking. Freud questions the very possibility of a wholly positive gain of pleasure or an unequivocal increase in happiness through technological advancement. True, he can speak to his child who is hundreds of miles away on the telephone, but that child would never have left his hometown in the first place without the invention of the railway. So these gains from civilization, Freud compares to the cheap enjoyment extolled in the anecdote, the enjoyment obtained by putting a bare leg from under the bedclothes on a cold winter night and then drawing it in again. We can detect, I think, a certain cynicism in Freud's argument here. Perhaps he overplays his hand. But the point about ambivalence is still crucial, though. It seems indisputable, he writes, that we do not feel comfortable in our present-day civilization. If we remember the original translation that Freud had suggested for the title of our text, Man's Discomfort in Civilization, I think it helps us to understand Freud's position. 
discomfort seems to have a more existential, perhaps a, a more all-encompassing feeling that also seems somehow more difficult to place than the word discontent. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tom. So what then, according to Freud, are the, are the hallmarks of civilization? Firstly, he suggests that humanity wants to make the world work for them, like protecting ourselves from the violent forces of nature. And to do this, we have built and used tools, harnessed fire, constructed dwellings. But as civilization develops, the development of tools help us and allow us to perfect our own motor and sensory organs. Freud suggests some examples like ships and aircrafts that can overcome the limits of movement, like you mentioned, or spectacles that improve our vision. But despite this, Tom, it seems as if we feel a sense of uneasiness with some of these technological advances. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And and to really explore the kind of radical nature of Freud's argument here, I'd like to just read the following passage. It's actually one of my favourite parts of this text, uh, and indeed all of Freud. Um, and this is from the Standard Edition, Volume 21, uh, midway down page 91. Freud writes, These things that, by his science and technology, man has brought about on this earth, on which he first appeared as a feeble animal organism, and on which every individual of his species must once more make its entry, O inch of nature, as a helpless suckling. These things do not only sound like a fairy tale, they are an actual fulfilment of every, or of almost every, fairy tale wish. All these assets he may lay claim to as his cultural acquisition. Long ago he formed an ideal conception of omnipotence and omniscience, which he embodied in his gods. To these gods he attributed everything that sent unattainable, that seemed unattainable to his wishes, or that was forbidden to him. One may say, therefore, that these gods were his cultural ideals. Today he has almost come very close to the attainment of this ideal. He has almost become a god himself. Only, it is true, in the fashion in which ideals are usually attained, according to the general judgment of humanity. Not completely, in some respects not at all, in others only halfway. Man has, as it were, become a kind of prosthetic god. When he puts on all his auxiliary organs, he is truly magnificent. But those organs have not grown on to him, and they still give him much trouble at times. Nevertheless, he is entitled to console himself with the thought that this development will not come to an end precisely with the year 1930 AD. Future ages will bring with them new and probably unimaginably great advances in this field of civilization, and will increase man's likeness to God still more. But in the interests of our investigations, we will not forget that present day man does not feel happy in his godlike character. I think this passage is also particularly relevant for today. So the human being, 
in developing these wonderful auxiliary organs, takes on an illusory magnificence, becomes a prosthetic god who is unable to feel at ease in his godlike character. Such a fascinating notion, I think. One which is developed in Jacques Derrida's uh, conception of the pharmacon, the Greek word for both poison and cure. Or in a similar vein by the groundbreaking work of Bernard Stiegler on technology. Technology then is pharmacological in that it can both liberate and manipulate human desires. It can therefore be seen as a potential threat to the freedom of the human subject. We might think of Adorno's work on the culture industry in this respect, or even the body horror films of David Cronenberg, you know, uneasiness indeed. A brilliant passage then, and as so often in these moments of brilliance in Freud, there's a personal dimension that can be found hidden just under the surface. The figure of a prosthetic god must remind us of the prosthesis that Freud himself had to wear in his mouth as a result of the cancer that developed in his jaw and the many operations he had to undergo. Known as his monster, this prosthesis caused him continued discomfort and at times extreme pain. It affected his speech and had to be regularly removed and cleaned causing him a great deal of distress. A final association that I would briefly like to draw on is the continued reference to the taming and controlling of nature, which Freud suggests is one of the hallmarks of civilization. Reading this in our contemporary context, we cannot but be reminded of the climate emergency and the terrible cost of our continued attempt to dominate and exploit the natural world. We could perhaps equate the effects of climate change with the return of the repressed, or perhaps more accurately, with the innate destructiveness of nature, having become unbound by sustained human intervention. This is a topic that we will be returning to in future episodes. Thank you so much for that, Tom. So if technology is one of the hallmarks of civilization, um, what other characteristics does Freud refer to? Well, Freud goes on to list a number of characteristics that we would expect to find developed in civilization, but he continues to add qualifiers as to the benefits that these characteristics bring. As we've seen, technological advancements are a hallmark of civilization, are in a way fairy tale wish fulfillments, but they somehow contain their own negation. Solutions produce new problems. Answers generate new questions. We should, as the old adage reminds us, be careful what we wish for. So a sense of order is to be expected in civilization, for example. To organize and control the natural world and indeed our inner impulses. In contemplation of the great astrological regularities, we perceive a pattern a template which can help us to successfully order our existence. But we resist the totalizing effects of such an ordering. Even though Freud suggests that order has an obvious and incontestable set of benefits for us. 
He also refers to it as a kind of compulsion to repeat. So there are echoes of the death drive here, intimations of the automaton that had featured in The Uncanny. There's something inhuman, isn't there, about the effect of total organisation. Again, Adorno and Stiegler both developed ideas in this direction. Freud's point is elaborated further when he writes the following. As human beings, we maintain then an inborn tendency to carelessness, irregularity and unreliability. So something in us resists and refuses to be drawn into total organisation. And I think we'd probably all agree that this unconscious resistance to order and regularity is something to be cherished. Beauty and cleanliness take their place alongside order as other characteristics of civilization. Although for Freud, civilizations cannot be defined in terms of utility alone. Freud, of course, was well versed in utilitarianism, having translated John Stuart Mill when he was younger. One feature that appears to be ubiquitous for Freud is the encouragement of man's higher mental activities, his intellectual, scientific and artistic achievements. Even though he has spent much of the previous chapters, and indeed the whole of his previous book, criticising the role of religion in human life, and even though we know he took a dim view on the claims of philosophy, Freud places both under the umbrella of the intellectual achievements characteristic of civilization. Finally, and crucially for the direction of his later argument, Freud suggests that we would expect to see the regulation of social relationships, the establishment and upholding of social contracts, which become determined by the rule of law, taking over from a condition that is defined by might equals right. So when coming towards the end of this discussion of the characteristics of civilization, Freud writes the following, and this is from pages 95 to 96 in the Standard Edition. He says, The liberty of the individual is no gift of civilization. It was greatest before there was any civilization, though then, it is true, it had, for the most part, no value, since the individual was scarcely in a position to defend it. The development of civilization imposes restrictions on it, and justice demands that no one shall escape those restrictions. What makes itself felt in a human community as a desire for freedom may be their revolt against some existing injustice, and so may prove favourable to a further development of civilization. It may remain compatible with civilization, but it may also spring from the remains of their original personality, which is still untamed by civilization and may thus become the basis in them of hostility to civilization. The urge for freedom, therefore, is directed against particular forms and demands of civilization or against civilization altogether. It does not seem as though any influence could induce a man to change his nature into a termites. No doubt he will always defend his claim to individual liberty against the will of the group. 
A good part of the struggles of mankind centre round the single task of finding an expedient accommodation, one, that is, that will bring happiness, between this claim of the individual and the cultural claims of the group. And one of the problems that touches the fate of humanity is whether such an accommodation can be reached by means of some particular form of civilization, or whether this conflict is irreconcilable. End quote. So, for Freud, the development of civilization seems to be closely related to the reduction of freedom in the individual, at least to a certain type of individual freedom. You know, what's Freud saying here? Is he on the side of civilization or not? Is he against it? Well, firstly, Jamie, the, the passage you just read is, is quite remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? The, the urge for freedom, at least one aspect of it, is directed against civilization itself. Can we find an expedient accommodation? Can we resolve this conflict through the civilizing process? Or is this conflict perhaps irreconcilable? Such far-reaching questions, such seemingly irresolvable antinomies, really underpin Freud's analysis of civilization up to this point. But what becomes clear in the next paragraph is that Freud will not address these issues as an Enlightenment philosopher by attempting to resolve these antinomies, but he will take the role of diagnostician. At the same time, he writes, we have to be careful not to fall in with the prejudice that civilization is synonymous with perfecting, that it is the road to perfection preordained for men. So civilization itself is pharmacological in the sense we discussed earlier, or ambivalent perhaps in psychoanalytic terms. In fact, Freud goes on to describe civilization as a process that humankind undergoes, process that again, from a psychoanalytic point of view, brings about changes in the familiar instinctual dispositions of human beings, to satisfy which is, after all, Freud writes, the economic task of our lives. Here we arrive at Freud's destination, a springboard, really, for a discussion on the interrelations between instinct theory and culture, which will become the main subject matter of the rest of the book. The satisfaction of our instinctual disposition, then, is what propels the circulation and distribution of energy throughout the psyche in its attempt to release the build-up of tension through the most direct and immediate means possible. This demand, upheld by the pleasure principle, is, as we have seen, modified through experience by the introduction of the reality principle. Thus the demand for immediate release is delayed and managed under the influence of the external world. The instincts are similarly changed in ways which seem to run parallel to developments that can be traced through the history of civilization. The formation of character traits, such as in the anal character, which transforms an earlier fascination with the excretory function into the traits of parsimony, a sense of order, 
and cleanliness seem to mirror the historical development that takes place under the influence of civilization. The sublimation of instinctual aims in the individual towards finer and higher concerns seem to mirror the flourishing of science, art and religion in the history of civilization. And finally, the renunciation of instincts through repression, suppression and other means finds its equivalent in the repressive regulations imposed on the individual by civilization. So the cultural development of civilization seems to echo the instinctual development of the individual. One can be mapped onto the other. This move will prove crucial for Freud later on. What Freud is also clear about is the fact that the pressure that civilization places on the individual by demanding and reinforcing these instinctual changes must be compensated for economically. Otherwise, serious disorders could arise. So we need our palliative measures, our auxiliary constructions, in order to bear the privations that civilization places upon us. But if civilization is a special process that can be linked to the instinctual development of the individual, how did it originate? Freud's attempt to answer this question, which is also an attempt to discover the quilting point connecting the individual and society, will lead to some extremely controversial findings, which we will be discussing in the next episode of Freud in Focus another mammoth episode and to all of all of you listening uh, all the way to the very end thank you so much for tuning in this week join us next time when we'll be back to discuss one of freud's most controversial theories concerning the origins of civilization and to discuss two extraordinary footnotes big thanks to my colleague tom de rose and our series producer carolina heller take care <laughs>